The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. We're all in the same boat here. We're all in a situation where all of a sudden our most critical negotiations are happening online right now. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been trained specifically on how to negotiate online? For most of you, the answer is going to be no. Even if you took an online negotiation course, it probably didn't talk about strategies and tactics for online negotiations. That's why we created this one-of-a-kind virtual training called How to Leverage Technology to Succeed in Your Online Negotiations. This is a two-hour training that will be held on June 4th, and it's all about giving you the tools and the confidence you need to get the best possible deal in these critical negotiations. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Lucene, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kwame, for having me. No, it's our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm a professional negotiator. And I'm an executive coach and trainer, and I help companies scale up their leadership development with through complex negotiations, emotional intelligence, or leadership skills. Fantastic. And what got you into this? Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my first career, I've been working in finance for over 12 years as an investment banker and on the stock exchange. So it was purely analytic trading but also a lot of negotiations and a bit of lobbying as well to pass the laws that were most beneficial for the companies that I was working for. And while I was working there, uh, it was the Paris Stock Exchange 2013. They brought in two professional negotiators to train us in a year-long masterclass. And those negotiators weren't just trainers. They they are actually professional negotiators on the field. One of them is a former hostage negotiator from the French Special Forces. The other one had other extensive background in negotiations, and then they came together and launched a company called the ADN Group, the Agency of Professional Negotiators in Paris. And so they came in for a year-long training in their method of complex negotiation, which is called Pacificat, which is a method, a nine-step method that allows you to prepare, conduct, debrief any form of negotiation. And I was absolutely fascinated by those two people. I mean, their storytelling, the experiences, the, the hostage and all the other crisis negotiations that they've done were truly fascinating and also a lot humbling as well. And while I started learning their method and started applying it in my negotiations at work, in my negotiations at home, I was like, wow, this, this works. <laughs> And then fast forward five years, I left the stock exchange. I wanted something else. I missed the human element. I did a year-long training to become an executive coach 
launched my own company as a coach. And then they reached out seeing on LinkedIn, actually, that I was working for myself and that I left finance and that I was now giving training to companies. They reached out and said, Luz, we are expanding. We have way too much demand for the time that we have. Would you like to join us and provide our trainings? So, of course, that was uh, an honor to work with those guys. I said yes, and then here we are. Now I'm providing that complex negotiation masterclass that I had now seven years ago to companies here, mainly in the Middle East. This is great. Well, yes, we are very excited to have your, your level of expertise here. And today we're going to talk about how to negotiate your way to a better life. And I'm really excited about this one. So the three things that we're going to focus on are assertiveness, separating the decision maker from the negotiator, and using conflict strategically to add value. So let's start off with the first thing, assertiveness. Tell us more about that. I think assertiveness is something that is often misinterpreted or misunderstood, especially by women, I would say. I can say as a woman, as women, we tend to be less assertive than men. And I think it has a lot to do with education and what's been expected from us and the belief systems that we have. I believe today women aren't as assertive as they should be. Now, let's start with what assertiveness is, because often it's, it's misinterpreted as aggressiveness or as too emotional in whichever emotion we're talking about. Well, assertiveness is nothing more than simply standing up for what you believe in speaking up, speaking your truth, while at the same time respecting that the other person might have another opinion or might not agree with you, which is totally okay. And that brings us to the third point that you just mentioned, the importance of conflict and how that can add value. So assertiveness for me is simply having enough self-confidence, having enough a level of self-esteem to consider that what you have to say you are worth saying what you have to say. And the other person also has the right to say what they think, even if you don't agree. That's assertiveness. So if you look at it that way, I believe we should really train everybody, including young children, to speak up, to say, you know what? You have the right to speak up. I can speak for myself. I was educated in a way where my father used to always tell me, Luz, if you don't know, everything about the subject, then don't say anything at all. Like you have to be this world-class expert in whatever it is that you want to say before you have the right to open your mouth. And obviously that left a mark on me. I, I was very shy. I didn't speak much. And every time I had something to say, but I would think about how am I going to say this? Does this add value? Who am I to? Et cetera, et cetera. Until I did a lot of work on myself and realized, you know what, if I have something to say, I have the right to say it, even if it doesn't come out like this perfect phrase that adds value and solves the world problems. And yeah, I worked a lot on that. And then by helping others, I realized many people struggle with this and women more than men on my, in my experience. And it's something that is not okay. It's not okay that people think they don't have the right to speak if it's not good enough. So yeah, assertiveness is key in communications, in in life and in every negotiation. Fantastic. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that misunderstanding that people have 
of assertiveness is very problematic because a lot of times it's it's seen or can be seen as a negative thing. And and really what you're saying is it's just recognizing the right of both parties to to speak up and share their thoughts. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was not just the fact that we are speaking up and advocating for ourselves, but at the same time we are accepting the right of the other person to have a differing opinion. Why is that last part so important? Because if you don't respect the other part, that's when you become aggressive. That's when it's all about you and you take all space and you don't listen anymore. And then it does, it's not a dialogue anymore. It's a monologue where you just think that what you have to say is so important that everything, you know, everyone should listen and agree. Well, if you keep that humility and say, just the way I have the right to speak up, someone else has the right to speak up, even if they don't agree, then the way you communicate automatically becomes more respectful and ethical. Right. You know, what's really fascinating about this is that when somebody doesn't have a good understanding of what assertiveness is, they might think about this as an attribute, a characteristic, or maybe even a tactic. But really, it seems as though, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems as though assertiveness is more of a mindset. And once you adopt that mindset, correct behaviors and more persuasive behaviors kind of flow from that mentality. Yeah, I love that. And so one of the things that you mentioned was confidence and self-esteem. So how do you suggest that people start to build that confidence and self-esteem that they need to be more assertive? Mm, Million dollar question, right? I work with this all the time. And it's not as simple as to say it in simply one phrase. But I think it's so important that people work on themselves. We are sent into life with a certain type of education we've had, with a certain type of studies we've done, with a certain type of companies we've worked for. And we are so influenced by the culture and by the voices and by what everybody said that we should do or we should be or we shouldn't do, etc., etc. And all those voices have had an impact and are creating the voices that we tell ourselves. And I think a healthy dose of self-confidence comes from self-awareness, from knowing yourself, from knowing when you hear those voices, what's me, what's not me, what are my values, who am I, what is it about myself that I like, what is it about myself that I don't like, where does that come from? And once you understand that, then you have a better understanding of who you are as a human being, then add a healthy dose of empathy towards yourself to say, you know what, I'm not perfect and that's okay. This is what I know about myself. These are the skills that I have. These are the things I'm good at. These are the things I'm not good at. How can I develop them? Do I need to become better at that? Et cetera, et cetera. And then really see yourself as a masterpiece in progress. I mean, you're learning. And then if you start treating yourself with empathy, I think your self-confidence automatically grows because one, you're going to congratulate yourself more when you do things right. And two, you're going to stop beating yourself up when you do things wrong. So again, it's a kind of mindset where you learn to accept yourself for who you are, respect yourself for what you've been doing well, and have a healthy dose of empathy when you fail, learn from it, stand back up, etc., etc. So by doing that and seeing yourself as a masterpiece in progress, you will become more indulgent with yourself. 
and self-acceptance and a healthy dose of self-confidence will help you get way further in life than if you don't have it. I love this point. And one of the things that I really like about it is that idea of self-empathy or self-compassion, because when you do fail, which we all will, you can't beat yourself up because then you start to pull away from that failure because it doesn't feel good when you're investigating the failure mentally. You say, ooh, I'm beating myself up. I don't like the way that feels, so I'm not going to go deeper. But if you have self-compassion, you say, hey, everybody makes mistakes. This was a mistake that I made. In order to make sure I don't make this mistake again, I need to investigate it, learn more about the situation, learn more about myself, then you really start to improve because you're building your skills through that investigation. And it seems as though if you're unable to do that, if you're still treating yourself with that level of unhealthy self-criticism, then that might expand into the arguments or points that you want to bring to the table. And that might cause you to hold back because that same level of self-criticism that you're bringing to yourself in general you're applying to your arguments and you say, well, you know, this is potentially stupid. I don't want to risk failure. So I'm not even going to put my ideas out there. I'm just going to stay quiet, which makes us less assertive. Exactly. And then you can either become passive and, you know, you let everything flow because you think you're not worth standing up for what you believe in, or you become very defensive. You're like, whatever they say, you're like, oh, because you're so not in peace with yourself that you have this need to always defend yourself. And that's when ego starts playing a big party. And that obviously impacts every negotiation. Yeah. We recently collaborated with four top universities to host over 600 business leaders and negotiation experts in our virtual negotiation and conflict resolution summit. It went really, really well, and it gave us an opportunity to get a unique understanding of the challenges and opportunities that come with virtual negotiation. And that's what prompted us to create this online negotiation training that's all about how to leverage technology to succeed in your online negotiations. It will break down the strategy and tactics you need to get the best possible deal for yourself and for your company, even though you're not negotiating in the traditional way. If this is something that's interesting to you, check out our website to learn more. The training is going to be held on June 4th. We'd love to see you there. And as an added bonus, you can get access to our online course and the virtual training for the same price. So make sure you check out the website if you're interested in learning more. And now back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Very interesting. And so when it comes to advocating for what you believe in, 
how can we try to suspend our ego? How do we make sure that the ego doesn't become a part of it? Yeah. Well, first of all, we tend to have this negative impression about the ego. Well, we shouldn't forget that the ego is always there also for a reason and that it also serves us. For example, when you're in a high-stake negotiation, the fact that you have your ego telling you, yeah, let's do this, I, I can win this, and that's healthy. That's going to give you motivation to go. So a healthy dose of ego is important. Now, when it becomes problematic is when you start believing that you already know it or that you already had this kind of negotiation, so it's going to be smooth, or that you already know what the other party wants, which impacts your listening skills. It's this, when it becomes too big in a sense of, oh, I can do this. Oh, I already know it. Oh, uh -huh. so the opposite of humbleness, which we all need in negotiation, that's when it becomes problematic. So again, it goes back to self-awareness, knowing yourself and realizing, ooh, this is my ego talking, or this is a tactic that I'm using. For example, right now, today, I was negotiating a deal with a company and we've already been working together for a year. And they came back saying, you know, we want more of your services and we want you to train a larger part of our team, et cetera, et cetera. And we all agreed on everything, on the timing, on the costs, on everything. And then we were supposed to be in a few days to sign. And he just sent me a message, the CEO saying, yeah, my partner, he's not convinced of the investment. And I think we should you know, talk about it or I'll let you convince him. And I was like, no, I've already showed you my value. They are super happy. The, the team feels way more self-confident. They have brought in deals and we're talking about a lot of money that largely and largely, you know, cover what they've invested in me last year. I've done a lot of things for them without calculating that in. And I've already proven that. So I know First of all, it's not true that his colleague is hesitating because I saw him today and his body language said all the opposite. So I know it's a tactic. So then it's either my ego saying, are you crazy? Or I can see it that he's using it as a tactic and then answer back as a tactic. And I simply said, listen, we've been working together for one year. If he's hesitating about the value I bring, then maybe we shouldn't do it. Dot. This is great. And audience, I think we have our, our five-star point <laughs> for the podcast. So this, this point, I really want to focus in on it because I think this is something that you can take home. And of course, if you're new to the five-star point, I think everybody is because it's the first time I'm doing it. So if you find value in the episode, make sure that you leave us a five-star review. And uh, so other people recognize that there's value in this interview and in the show in general. But Lucine, this is a really great point. And I think about it almost like baking a cake. So it's not a situation of whether or not you should put salt in a cake. It's a, an, an important ingredient. But if you put too much salt in it, <laughs> you have a salty cake that doesn't taste good. And that's the same thing with ego. There is a healthy dose of ego that's appropriate that we want to put into all of these interactions, but it's when we put too much, that's when it becomes problematic. And the example that you gave is, is really great. So for the audience, they already know this, but I'm a chess nerd. I love playing chess. On my chess.com account, I have over 13,000 games. It's a, an addiction at this point. But I was reading a book last week, and what they said is you have to play the board, not the player. 
because the board, it's the same 64 square, same pieces, right? You play the game, but a lot of times you get distracted by the person on the other side. And in your negotiation example, what's happening is there's a little bit of gamesmanship. It's used as a tactic to get you off your game in order to make you, cause you to make a mistake. And you decided I'm not going to play that game based on what I'm seeing, my analysis of the situation. This is how I'm seeing it. So I'm going to hold my position. And I think that's a a brilliant way to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that about, you know, make it about the board and not about the the game, because that also gives you more power. It's, you know, it helps you to focus on what you can control and not what you can't control. So, you know, I think it's empowering. Perfect. Well, good deal. Yeah, I think this is a good time to transition into the, uh, the second point, separating the decision maker from the negotiator. So what do you mean by that? It's one of the key elements that we teach in our, in our masterclass. And it's interesting because when I'm training a company where the CEO is part of the people being trained, I always give him a call before we start saying, I'm going to talk about this point. So if this is part doesn't apply in your company culture, I just want to give you a heads up that this is something that I'm going to say and you will be there with your board members or you know your team. And just know that this is part of what we truly believe in because not everybody agrees. Now, why do we always say that we have to dis- separate the decision maker from the negotiators? Well, for, for, for many different reasons, actually. And one of it is what we just discussed, the ego sensitivity. When you are the CEO of a company or the founder of a company, so you created this company from zero, you are attached to it in every sense of the word. So when you are negotiating with someone and God forbid they say something about your company, your ego sensitivity is so much higher than someone else who is just working there, right? So it can put you in a position where the ego is going to take over and you're going to react emotionally instead of rationally because your ego, being the CEO of the company, being the founder of the company, is simply higher. And you don't even have to be the founder. It's simple. The higher you come on the hierarchy, the more you are used to people doing what you want and listening to you, et cetera, et cetera. So whether we want it or not, ego grows. And a negotiator who is more detached from that will negotiate better because they don't have that same level of ego sensitivity. Now, this is only one. Number two is the higher you come on the hierarchy, what we expect from you as a leader is to make decisions. And in order to make decisions, you need to have this strategic overview of what's going on, the global vision of what's going on. Well, while you're negotiating, you're on the field, so you have this tactical vision. And it's very difficult to have both the tactical vision and the bigger picture at the same time. So when we separate the decision maker from the negotiator, the negotiator goes in, often knows the case more technically because they're more involved, their client, their product, they just know it better. And they can make better decisions because they have this tactical view of what's happening. Now, whenever there is an important decision to be made, that's when you go back to the decision maker. So this is the second reason. The third reason is also when the decision maker comes in, if you are negotiating with a party and they bring in the decision maker, so whether it's the CEO or whoever else, are you after that going to negotiate with the negotiator again? No. Why would you? We always say, once you talk to God, why talk to the disciples? 
So then the CEO can't pull himself out again and give the credibility to the negotiator. He, by, by putting himself in, he's putting the negotiator out because the, the other party doesn't want to talk with the negotiator anymore. So the first thing we always do is separate the decision maker from the negotiator. And then how do you do that is by having a very clear mandate for the negotiator. That is the first thing that the negotiator negotiates, the mandate with, between him and his leader. He negotiates very clear, okay, on all the aspects of the, where can I go? What is my breaking point? What is my walkaway point? What is our ideal point? And goes in and has this clear mandate of, okay, this is what I'm going to negotiate, which gives him confidence, which gives him credibility, which gives him the backing of his leader of saying, okay, go. You know what you can do. You go. You can go and so where you can go. And then in that mandate, you can add a tipping point, meaning if we come to this point, I will go back and talk to the decision maker. So, you know, this is what's happening. This is the actual situation. So, and that's the only time where the decision maker comes in and says, okay, this is the overview based on his strategic overview of the situation or the company or the strategy. He can say, okay, we're going to do this and we're not going to do that. He says that, empowers his negotiator again, and off he goes. This is great. I like what you said about if you've already spoken to God, why speak to the disciples? I think that's a really great way to see it. And again, like you said, ego plays a role. If you are an egotistical leader, you might say to yourself, well, I'm the person who's the best negotiator on the team. I happen to be the CEO as well. And so I should do both. But like you said, strategically, it is not putting yourself in the best position. And this seems very similar to the FBI model of negotiations, where you have somebody who's the negotiator, somebody who's the commander, somebody who's the decision maker. And it's very structured in a way to make sure that the negotiator has the ability to, to make the moves at the table. But then there's somebody behind the scenes who's actually making the decisions and making sure that nobody breaks rank is an important part of the process. So we now understand why it's so important to do that offensively. But now thinking about it defensively, if we're thinking about it from the perspective of the other side, what types of strategies or tactics can we employ to, to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the best position for success if they try to organize themselves in this way? Well, it's the same as in everything. When we negotiate, and now I'm talking about high-stake negotiations in companies, you rarely negotiate with the CEO. I mean, sales, procurement, you're maybe negotiating with the head of sales, with the head of procurement, but they always also report to somebody. The CEO, if he's negotiating, he should negotiate with other CEOs, with people that are on the same level, that have the same decision-making power, and that have the same kind of mandates, right? There has to be this balance. So if you're negotiating with someone on the other side and they are not a decision maker, that's good. That's good because at least the negotiator focuses on the negotiation. The negotiator often has less ego. The negotiator often has less emotional implication in what's happening. The negotiator often has a better technical understanding of what's happening and what we're talking about. And yeah, that's better for in both ways. I mean, you're not going to say, so who is the decision maker? I'm not going to negotiate with you. Obviously, that doesn't work that way. So if you have the decision maker, you can use all the elements I just said in your favor of saying, you know, when there is something that happens, I can always go back to my decision maker. He can't. Another important aspect is also the decision maker. There's often only one, whereas negotiators, you know, just like in a hostage negotiation, if the negotiator is tired, if the negotiator loses his vision, you can always pull him out and put someone else in. But if you're going to put the president to negotiate with the hostage taker, 
and the president loses it, who are you going to put, right? Right. That's great. Yeah. And one of the, the elements of a great strategy is the fact that it gives you options. And when you use this approach, you have options. Because like you said, if we start with number one, nobody's going to want to negotiate with number two. But mm -hmm. if you're having somebody else within the company represent, then you could have another person step in and it doesn't seem as strange. So strategically, I think that's a great way to give yourself more options, more wiggle room too. Yeah, absolutely. But also give yourself the possibility of saying, you know, on this point, I have to, I, let me see what I can do, which can, you know, you can use it as a tactic to simply gain time, or you can use it as a tactic to create resistance to what it is that you want to give. But if, you, if you're the decision maker, you can't say, hmm, let me discuss this internally. Discuss with whom? Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, if we're trying to figure out a way to apply this to everyday life, what do you think the best application would be? So let's say it's not one of those high stakes negotiations. You're just every day. I wouldn't necessarily go there because that's a bit more difficult. But there are a lot of cases where you simply can't because you are the decision maker and then you simply have to do it. Then gotcha. you use different, different negotiation hours to do it. But yeah, there are a lot of cases where you are the negotiator and the decision maker. There's no one else you can put in front and then you do what the best you can. Perfect. No, that makes sense. Good deal. All right, let's shift to the third one. So now with the time we have left, let's talk about how we can use conflict to add value. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, most people have a low appetite for conflict. They tend to not like conflict and they tend to walk away from it or you know, shy away from it or whatever you want to call it. It, it, it creates stress, etc. Now, the question is, how do we see conflict? Conflict for me is nothing else than an expressed disagreement. I tell you, Kwame, this is what I want. And you tell me, well, this is what I want. It's not the same thing. I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. There is an express disagreement. So there's conflict. Conflict is not in a sense of, you know, aggressivity or guns or that kind of conflict. The conflict for me is an expressed disagreement. Now, why is that good? First of all, imagine I want something from you. I come and to your store, I want to buy something, and I say, okay, how much is this? And you tell me it's $100, yeah? And imagine my budget is 50 and I tell you, oh, okay, thank you, bye. Now, you don't know what I think. You don't know I don't agree. You don't know I have $50 to spend. So the fact that I'm not telling you that I don't agree takes away the possibility to negotiate because there is no disagreement. Now, maybe... It's something you want to get rid of and you would be very happy to receive 50. But the fact that I don't tell you that I don't agree doesn't create this opportunity to negotiate something which we both might like. So that's again back to assertiveness and why it's important to speak up, right? But it's also linked to your appetite for conflict. If you see conflict as an opportunity, you will speak up. Because you're like, oh, yes, there is a place where we don't agree. Let's see if we can get something out of it. Another point is, Conflict is, if we see it as an express disagreement, is the opportunity to create value. Let's look at uh, some regimes where people are not free to speak up. So the president says something and everybody agrees. Now, isn't that fantastic, one way of thinking? How on earth does that create value, right? If as a CEO, you have an idea, you share it, and you have a board of directors of 10 people, and they all agree with you, you have a problem. 
because with 11 people, you still have one idea. You have to reconsider your, your company culture and see what's happening that nobody sweeps up, but that's another story. Imagine you do have a good company culture where people feel safe to say that they don't agree. So there is express disagreement and they tell you, Mr. CEO, Mrs. CEO, I don't agree because a second idea comes up. Well, third person says, I don't agree either because, and up there you have one more. By being assertive enough to express that you don't agree with something opens up the possibility to create value, opens up the possibility to discuss, to negotiate, and to find an agreement. So when you see the value of conflict in the sense express disagreement, you see that it's only by expressing your disagreement in an assertive way, meaning respectful of other people's opinions, that you can start to talk about different points of view, about different ideas. And that's what creates value. It makes a lot of sense. And not only is conflict an opportunity, but it is a unique opportunity. It's almost one of the few opportunities that we have in the, in the process of, of working together to bring out those, those new ideas. And it's almost a necessary part of the process. I absolutely agree. The problem is not conflict. The problem is the way conflict is being treated, is being resolved or non-resolved. That is the problem. It's how you deal with the conflict that might be problematic. But the conflict itself is an opportunity for growth, is an opportunity to add value, is an opportunity to create something new. Conflict is good. How you deal with it might be problematic. So if you look at it that way and we teach people healthy ways of conflict resolution, and that is, I mean, that's part of our, our jobs, right? That's what you do. That's what I do. If we teach people healthy ways of conflict resolution, that's how we can transform conflict into opportunity. It makes a lot of sense. And so let's say if you're able to adopt this mentality and you start to be more proactive in moving toward conflict as a problem-solving opportunity, but the person on the other side still sees it as a threat, something to fear, how do you approach conflict with somebody who is conflict-averse? Well, if somebody is conflict or worse, they will try to walk away from it. And the first thing is acknowledgement, acknowledgement of what they are feeling. So they are feeling stress. They might feel fear. They might feel sadness or whatever it is that makes them conflict averse. And the first thing is to recognize it and then to acknowledge it, to allow it to be like that. Because that person is feeling an emotion that is legitimate for them. So by giving space and by allowing it to be, you can help them reconnect with their neocortex, with their rational brain and say, you know, I see this is putting you in a difficult situation or I can see that, you know, this might be difficult for you. And by simply allowing that emotion to be, you make it part of what's happening instead of either pretending you're not seeing it and not talk about it at all or you know, exaggerating it or even worse, making fun of it. Let it be. It's okay to not like this. I mean, this is a conversation that not many people have. Go around and ask people, do you like conflict? And almost everybody will say no. So it's, you know, it's a different kind of looking at it and it's a different way of, of approaching things. So it's okay. And yeah, first thing is recognition. That's why I always combine complex negotiations with emotional intelligence, because you have to know these things about yourself so that you can recognize it in others. 
it's the same with empathy. You have to give empathy to yourself so that you can be empathetic with others. You have to listen to yourself so that you can listen to others. You have to allow yourself to speak up and be assertive so that you can accept that someone else might not agree. You have to understand that conflict is important also when you have an inner conflict so that you can be at ease when there is an outer conflict and put others at ease as well. You know, I often tell people, I see you don't agree and that's okay. And we start from there. I think that's a great way to approach it. And, and what you're recognizing is that what might have brought us to the negotiation table was a substantive issue. But when they start to become conflict averse, it's an emotional issue. And the only way to move forward is by addressing that emotion, working through it. And then that activity can pull them to the conversation so they can actually engage. And if you just look at it completely as an exercise in logic or rationality, you're going to be bringing powerful tactics to the table that do not apply in, yeah, absolutely. in this situation, yeah. which leads to no yeah. more frustration. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really frustrating to see that people are still telling each other the best way to negotiate is to be rational. Like, come on, it's, it's like the same way as saying the best way to lose weight is just never to eat again. I mean, how on earth is that possible, right? We need food, just like we need air, just like we need emotions. And it's not something that we choose to have or not to have. It's part of us. It's part of our brain. It's part of us human beings. You can't shut out emotions. The best way is to learn to deal with them, increase your dose of emotional intelligence so that you can transform it into an ally. Exactly. Well, this has been fantastic. I need to be mindful of time. I know I could just keep on going. And so I'm, I'm excited about this episode. And I thank you again for coming on the show. But before you go, remind the listeners, about your company and how they can connect with you. Yeah, so I collaborate with a company called ADN Group, adngroup.com, where we are a great bunch of professional negotiators going all around the world and teaching people about negotiations, about conflict resolution. So that's adngroup.com. And more info about myself, you can simply find on my LinkedIn page. Fantastic. Lucine, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.